Our good friends at Johnny O welcome you to this episode. And if you've listened to Rich Take on Sports, then you know two things are important. Sharing the impact of sports in people's lives and the Johnny O clothing brand, blending those East Coast classic styles with a SoCal vibe. I've been wearing Johnny O for several years, and now you can as well with 20% off your first order by using the promo code ARICHTAKE at johnny-o.com. Live your best life with the Johnny O style and use promo code ARICHTAKE at johnny-o.com for 20% off your first order. Exploring the impact of sports. Welcome Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Having conversations and hearing personal stories from those who have been impacted built and inspired by the role of sports in their lives here's your host here's your host Weaver. this is episode 136 thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen Culture is something that at times can be very hard to describe with words, almost like leadership. You just know it when you see it. And Tom Luganbill knows just how important culture is, not only in sports, but also in life. He would grow up around sports, the son of a college football coach, becoming one of the most sought-after quarterbacks in the nation after leading Palomar Junior College to the national championship in 1993. Tom would eventually win the starting job at Georgia Tech before transferring to Eastern Kentucky where he would finish his career. After various coaching stints, he would become an NFL evaluator for Scouts, Inc., which would lead him to now being one of the most recognized and respected college football recruiting scouts as the National Recruiting Director for ESPN, where you'll also find him on the sidelines as a sideline analyst. Our conversation with Tom Luganbill. Tom, thank you, sir. I know this is crazy times for us to be connecting, but thank you at least on video call and how crazy sports is and just the world right now. How are you adjusting? I mean, I've been seeing some some nice things. You're you're a Lego master builder these days, so give me the scoop on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me me and uh, Abraham Lincoln over here. We we've been keeping busy in my in my office. You know. It's it's interesting because I work out of my home traditionally. So the only time I'm not working from home is if I'm on the road, either broadcasting a game or I'm in studio television uh, or I'm at a camp or a combine. But I had already made a huge adjustment in my offseason when I joined our XFL coverage in our broadcast because – Generally in recruiting, this is it's not the off season, but it's more of the down period. I'm at home most of the time. I can set most of my schedule on my own. Um, and then the XFL came along and we were right back at it. And every week traveling, doing it was like college football, just with a little bit of a different tone and a different time of year. So I had made that adjustment. And my family's adjusting to it. Then in week five, we get pulled off the road. And so now it's kind of like, all right, well, I, I guess I'll just go back to what my my normal spring is, and really it's sitting in front of this big monitor I have in front of me right here and watching tape. So for me, number one, let's all be fortunate that we're employed because there are people out there that aren't, and that's important to note and have some perspective. And, And for me, in my particular area with this job, what I do generally during the day is I wake up, I set my schedule, 
I try and work it around being able to play with my kids in the afternoons, which used to be after school. Um, so now I just try to accelerate that schedule. I'm a morning person anyway. Try to accelerate that schedule. Um, studying tape, writing reports, applying grades. Um, you know, one of the things a lot of people don't know is uh, – Aside from my role in my employment at ESPN, I'm a part of a, a scouting service that we developed that is um, focused on identifying, grading, and projecting underclassmen in recruiting. And when I say underclassmen, I'm talking about freshmen and sophomores. When they go to camp, they test. We have all the video. We have all the measurables. We have all of that stuff. And it's a service that we utilize with universities. And we've got 64 of the 65 Power 5 schools as clients. And they can't go on the road right now. They're stuck. So they're just dying for information. So that information that we put in our database to provide for our clients has really kept me busy on top of the ESPN work and, and some of the things. So recruiting's really been a lifeblood for me to have something to do during the day that's, that's regular and I can set it to a schedule. Now, are you always wearing your PBR hat, though, when you're working from home? Because I love the hat. Yeah, you know, it's, it's usually some form of hat. It's either that or – hold on a second. I'll be, hold on. Yes, yeah, so we've on. got to see some other hats. Oh, well, now we get to see this, the rest of the background, my, too. I like my that. Summer, oh. My summer PBR hat. That's even now, better. This, one, this, one's a, this one's got a lot of class, and it, and it, and it hangs on my wall right over there. And I usually bring this down to Lake Kiwi. This is my my RV camping yes. hat. And so I think I'll wear this one for the rest of our little discussion. You like it? I love it. That That is a must. I have to have you wearing that. And more importantly, I need to know where to get one of those as well. <laughs> so I need to join this, you. Yes. The Goodwill, the Goodwill at Seneca, beautiful Seneca, South Carolina on Lake Kiwi. There it is. And then I got the iron-on patch on the internet, on the worldwide <laughs> interwebs. Fantastic. I love it. So you talk about the recruiting thing. When you say underclassmen uh, that you're focused on mm -hmm. with this other program, how is that different than what you're doing, say, at the Under Armour All-American game and you know, obviously the seniors? Are you viewing it in a different way in terms of how you're putting things together? So, well, it's, it's much more expansive and it's a much larger player pool. So in contrast to our work at ESPN, we're responsible for providing roughly the ESPN 300 and the ESPN Junior 300 and keeping up with those two classes concurrently. Um, we do obviously evaluate more than 300 players to figure out what's going to uh, make the top 300. Um, but when you're talking about the underclassmen report, which is what the name of the of the service is. Really, what we've done is we have targeted freshmen and sophomores, and then what what we do is when they go to a camp, whether it's an Under Armour camp or a Nike camp or an Elite Eleven camp, we put them through all of this data collection and testing, and they fill out a full profile, and it basically creates their baseline document that is now going into a database. So let's just say that um, we've got a freshman kid that was a starter on the varsity, pretty productive guy. He goes to a camp in the spring of his freshman year, heading into the summer of his sophomore year. And he does height, weight, arm length, hand size, three cone drill, short shuttle, 40 yard dash, 
And then during the football portions of the camps, every single rep he takes is on video, HD video. We take and we compile all that. And we make a player profile of that player. Now, fast forward and let's just say he goes to another camp three months later. We gather all that data again. Now, fast forward to the next spring. Now he's a sophomore. We gather all that data again. So what we've done is we've created this library of player information on this kid, everything from their school counselor to their mom's cell phone, you name it, it is, it's vast. But we're talking about thousands upon thousands of players. So right now, if I were to just rough, roughly give you an estimate, we're probably a little over 8,500 kids in the database of 2021. Wow. We're a little over 6,000 of 2022s, and we're probably about 3,000 of 2023 kids, which would be kids that just completed their freshman fall of football. So it is a vast database. Without a doubt. Repeated calculations. And because and it, it's great. You get to see if, if I want to take player A and I'm Clemson, or client, by the way, I take Clemson and they want to say, okay, we want to look at John Smith and, and how much taller did he get from this spring to this spring? How much more weight did he gain from this camp to this camp? Uh, what Did his 40 time improve? Did his short shuttle improve? Did his hand size get bigger? Did his arms get longer? And if this kid's shown up to three, four or five camps, that is valuable data to help make more accurate assessments in player evaluation. It's amazing the analytics these days and how useful yes. all this information is. How do you think that would have impacted your journey as a college football player if you would have had this type of service back in the day? So I was, I got recruited in the early 90s and I, these were the days where six foot quarterbacks didn't exist. You didn't recruit a six foot quarterback to play division one football. There was, there was such a measurable standard of, you know, six, two, 200, six, three, two fifteen, and, and if you weren't that you weren't going to play quarterback at college level. And I was a, an academic qualifier, good student, uh, very productive high school player, good athlete, multi-sport athlete, but we didn't have camps and combines and all of these sorts of things. There were no inter, there was no internet. There was no resource to gather information. So if, if you weren't somebody that was proactive with your recruitment, and in those days it would have been VHS tapes. If you weren't the one taking it upon yourself to send out your transcripts and your film and all that and getting it out to everybody, if you didn't meet a certain measurable standard and you didn't go on campus and attend maybe U.S. South from the West Coast. So if I didn't go to UCLA's camp or USC's camp or San Diego State's camp, you might not have gotten seen. And so I chose to go the junior college route because I really I really wanted to prove myself and I knew I needed to get better. And it, as a result, played two years of junior college football, won a national championship in 1993 Ended up leaving junior college football as the all-time leading passer in the history of junior college football nationally. And that record lasted for about 10 years. And after having no scholarship offers coming out of high school, I end up having dozens of offers. Two years later, I was still six foot. I was playing <laughs> in a wide open offense. We were throwing the ball like, like crazy. And uh, so I had I had some choices. But we didn't have the resources to get recruited um, 
the way kids do now. We didn't have, you know, again, the camps and combines and the internet's just changed everything in, in a remarkable way. Some good ways, some not so good. That's ways. right. Um, and a lot of that depends on how, uh, from a prospect side of it, how do kids handle it? How do they, how do they handle being told how great they are all the time and reading all of this positive publicity and, you know, it can get away from you a little bit. And then what I call the de-recruitment phase, which is when you actually step on campus and that guy that was telling you how great you were and patting you on the back, now all of a sudden cussing you up and down, how do you handle that? That's you know, right. A lot of kids aren't prepared for that, unfortunately, and some can't handle it. And the other side, just, you know, from the internet evolving to the social media side, and then there's yeah. another almost data point or collection of data that coaches can go and now look at your social media account and try to verify what type of character you have, you know, just based on what you're posting, you know, all of that. So I know that's part of it as well, that that's the trap of social media and the self-promotion that these athletes have right now. So it's interesting you bring that up and I'll take it a step further. Most of the programs, the prominent programs now have an entire staff devoted to daily details and daily briefings of what the prospects are putting on their social media. And when I speak with, with groups, whether it's at an Under Armour camp or a Nike camp or whatever it may be, the Under Armour All-America game, it's the first thing I preach with these kids. Whatever you put on the internet lives there forever. And it's a reflection of you, your name, your family, and you can't alter it. So under, and they'll go back and dig it up on you. Look at Kyle <laughs> yes. Murray when he was going through the draft process and, and you have, you've got all of these things. So, you know, the internet can be a dangerous place because you got to be mature enough to handle it. And you are being studied. You are being watched what you're putting on there, whether it's nudity, language, um, violence, whatever it is, it's being relayed daily to the head football coach. I can promise you that. Yeah, I would agree 100%. And I'm just so glad you know, when I was a teenager, college student, that we didn't have this because I, I would be embarrassed oh, by some of the things that my, would my be out there. Teammates and I, we, yeah, we joke all the time. We're like, can you imagine if there was a camera phone when we were in college? No. Oh my god. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 don't, I, don't even, I don't even, I don't even want to know. <laughs> exactly. You know, so I, I, I see it. I see it from their perspective. It can be a lot of fun, but it can be really, really dangerous. Yes, that's right. So let's walk back even further into your life and growing up in Southern California, San Diego, what was it like in the Luganville house? Cause I don't know if <laughs> everybody knows that, I mean, you're a coach's son and obviously yeah. you're going to gravitate towards sports just based on that, but kind of walk us through how it was and why sports, you know, outside of your dad coaching how you got into it. Well, first off, I was very fortunate as a coach's kid to only have to move one time during like my formative years. My dad had a very successful stint at Arizona State as a defensive coordinator for a number of years, and then went on to become the head coach at San Diego State in the late 80s, early 90s, which led into my high school and, and junior college uh, years. And so we didn't have to bounce around. You know, one thing about the coaching profession, I spent 11 years in it prior to, to moving in to the broadcast media side of it 14 years ago is there's a lot of instability and you, you've got to be able to deal with that. You've got to marry the right person. Your kids have got to be resilient and very, and, and then they've got to be able to deal with the negativity that comes publicly when it's related to a parent. And that can be very difficult for kids. And so 
One of the things, and you asked a, a kind of a, an interesting question about, you know, how I came to love the game. That came from my dad. And the reason why is because he never forced the game on me. He didn't care if I wanted to play the violin, if I wanted to play tennis, if I wanted to play piano. That didn't matter. If I wanted to play football, great. I was in. And so because it wasn't pushed on me, I think I, I gained a greater appreciation. I didn't feel pressured to have to like it because of what he did. And understand, I mean, when you're a coach's kid, you have tremendous, tremendous advantages in terms of a lifestyle that most kids would dream of. I mean, you, you, you're in a locker room since you could barely walk. You're constantly around the program. You're running around the coach's offices. You're, you know, you, you as a formative preteen or teenager that's involved in the game of football, I'll give you a prime example. So I'm growing up and I'm 15, 16 years old and I'm sitting in on player meetings that include Marshall Falk and the running back coach is Sean Payton. <laughs> Wow. So, I mean, what the, that's pretty cool, right? Yes. I mean, you're a kid, you're sitting there and you're realizing, whoa, you know, this is, this is unbelievable. I remember um, being around the office. My dad was, um, was looking to hire his running backs coach. And the two guys that he had come down to was Urban Meyer and Sean Payton. And the reason why he hired Sean was because Sean had been a GA for him. So he was a little bit more familiar at the time. Urban Meyer was the receivers coach at Colorado State under Earl Bruce. So, um, and like, you know, and I can remember that uh, vividly. So you, you have these, these great memories. I remember when my dad was at Arizona State and uh, as a defensive coordinator. And if you remember the 30 for 30 on, on the running back from Oklahoma, Marcus Dupree. Oh, yes, that's a great and, one. Okay, so that career-ending injury happened in the 1983 Fiesta Bowl, Oklahoma versus Arizona State. And I was, I don't know, six or seven years old running around on the field like I always would in pregame. And I'll never forget, and I'm just a little kid here, Sun Devil Stadium, 1983, and it's like, I think Arizona State's number six and Oklahoma's number four, something like that. And Barry Switzer's on the sideline during the game, smoking cigarettes. (laughs) During the game. During the game. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, during the game. And, uh, but you just, it was just, it was different then. And like, even... Like I can remember going to my dad's practices at San Diego State, and the coaches would be in shorts and, and flip flops and no shirts on, coaching football. It's just kind of like it's kind of what you did, you know. So uh, I was fortunate; I got to grow up in a great area in San Diego and Del Mar, which is just north of La Jolla. I lived a couple blocks from the beach, so I was a I was a surfer kid. I was a skateboarder. Uh, like I said, I was a multi-sport athlete, and uh, but no, I really loved it. I was very fortunate. I've got a twin sister, got uh, great parents, had a had a, uh, a fantastic uh, upbringing, very very fortunate. And so, uh, it's interesting too because I've lived predominantly in the South for the most part, most of my professional working career. And uh, I talked to you know people I either went to high school with or you know family members that are still out west. And I'm like, well, you know, why do you live in North Carolina? And I'm like. Because right now I pay a dollar fifty one a gallon for gas, and you pay four dollars and fifty one cents a gallon for gas. My property taxes are about four thousand dollars a year. Yours are forty five thousand dollars a year, and I just you can't. The cost of living is ridiculous. Can't afford to live out there. Well, we lived in San Diego when my wife and I first got married. This was 1999. Yes. And we lived there for two years. Our first child was born out in San Diego. Absolutely loved it. So very familiar with Del Mar and that whole area. It was different, though, for us just from 
growing up in the South and then going out there, there didn't seem to be the same type of love for college football and some of the, you know, the things that the pageantry around college football, not to say that fans out there don't. It's seasonal. It is seasonal. seasonal. Yes. You're 100% right. They're going to, when that season starts, they love it. When that season ends, they're on to something else. There's too much to do. There is way too much to do. There's too much to do. My wife and I, we still talk about the regret that we have that how we didn't take advantage of more stuff in San Diego. We were following kind of a career path. And, you know, next thing we know, it's two years later, get another promotion. I'm like, now I've got the wisdom to be able to look back and say, we didn't do enough in San Diego. (laughs) We wasted some of the time out there. That's for sure. I'll tell you what, I don't know what the heck, not to get into politics, but California's turned upside down. I don't even know if I'd recognize it right now. So I I don't think so either. It's a beautiful place to live. It really is. Who, Who is older, you or your twin sister? My twin sister is by three minutes. Does she hold that over you? Yeah, I kicked, I kicked, I kicked her out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, there's my daughter. She's peeking in on me. Hold on a second. What's up, baby? Oh, yes. DoorDash? We got to say hello my to her. Sort of DoorDash. She's letting me know. See, DoorDash comes and they just leave it right on on your porch. You don't even have to talk to them or you know come in contact. So pretty safe around here. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. All of these advances. I mean, it's just amazing over the past 20, 25 years. Who would have ever thought that we would have these type of things available to us from a technology standpoint to be able to video in like this? Yeah, people delivering yeah. to your house like that. I mean, it's just amazing the the difference, you know, from that perspective. It's it's mind boggling well, in you know, all reality. I tell my kids all the time, like, guys, you gotta understand, your mom and I grew up and we had three channels, all right? <laughs> three channels. Yes. The VCR was pretty much brand new, but there really weren't video stores, right? So if this would have happened then, can you? I mean, can you imagine the level of boredom for kids? But the difference between now and then, and I'm very fortunate because my wife and I have my kids like to be outside. They'll go out and play. They'll go out and shoot hoops. We live on a wooded uh, lot, so they they go out and and play around. But like, we all grew up playing outside. You know, you went outside and you played and you better be home by a certain time and this and that. So, but man, without the internet during all this stuff, without, you know, satellite TV and social media, cell phone, I mean, (laughs) holy smokes, what, I don't know what kids would do. Yeah, they they would probably be lost because they haven't been programmed like we were to be outside because you could be outside all day long and you wouldn't even think twice about it. Yeah, you would get bored, but you would still find something to do while you were outside. That was just oh, the yeah. reality of it. Yeah, there's no doubt. You're on your bikes. You were on your, it was like, it was like ET. Yes. Right. Is yeah. They, you go out and get on your bikes and you found stuff to do. That's right. And somehow it became competitive somewhere, you know, you would be competitive with friends of the neighborhood, you know, some type of sporting activity yeah, would break out. And nobody is wearing helmets. <laughs> no. Nobody's wearing helmets. <laughs> Somebody was going to lose a two. Yes. Nobody cared, though. No. Nope. As long as you got home on time, where you were supposed to be. <laughs> oh, man. I know. Good old days. What about from the perspective, you talked about the positive side of growing up as a coach's son, but I know there's another side as well. Maybe some of the pressures, uh, not only from just you as an athlete and that you're going to have to perform because you have had those advantages and you know maybe yeah. better training than other people have had, so you had to live up to certain expectations. But then the other side, that you're the coach's son and we know how coaches' lives are, that they're under a magnifying glass. Even back then, there's still you know, a lot yeah. of people talking about, oh, 
not this coach isn't performing. So how was that growing up and having to deal with that? Well, there really there's 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 two two negatives that I experienced being a coach's kid, and one of them could not be helped, but it was unfortunate. And that is your dad barely gets to ever see you play. When you're playing on a Friday night, they're generally at the hotel or they're scouting somebody and they're probably not going to be at your game. So they don't get to see you play. I think my dad might've gotten to see me play two high school games live, maybe then. And this is kind of an interesting story. His fifth year as the head coach at San Diego state, uh, he get, he ends up getting fired and it was fairly unexpected. He had just signed a new five-year extension and so he had four years remaining on the contract. But in those days, it wasn't like it is now. It wasn't like you didn't have, you know, you were set up for life. You know, in those days, you're going to have to get a job, put food on the table because, you know, coaches weren't getting wealthy like it is now. And so I'll never forget, I'm, I'm my sophomore year and just finishing up or getting ready to play for the Junior College National Championship. In fact, we're a week from it and I'm on campus at Palomar College and I'm walking to class and all of a sudden I look up and I see my dad walking towards me and like god you know that's odd yeah so that's unexpected that your dad's there yeah so he just walks up puts his arm around me and goes son two kinds of coaches in this world ones that have been fired ones that will be and uh and I just got fired <laughs> oh and gosh. he looks at me and he's and he looks at me and he says but the good news is I get to watch you play in the national championship game on Saturday. So, you know, there's a, there's a silver lining in that, you know, he ends up being relieved and then all of a sudden gets to see me play. And at what at that point would have been the biggest game of my football career at that point. And so, um, uh, that was awesome, you know, and that, that was neat, but yeah, you don't get to, you're, you don't get to see your dad much unless it's in times where you're not in school because they're always at work. They're always on the road. So that there's a downside to that. But I think more than anything else is, is the second thing that you alluded to. And that's when you're young, you're having to deal with negativity and with people, you know, whether it's school, uh, kids at school, the, the following Monday after maybe your, the, your dad's teams had an embarrassing performance or a coaching snafu or something. And then, you know, it's like it is now just without the Internet. Everybody's got something to say about it. And then, you know, you've got in those days, it was all radio and print media. So, you know, they're going to they're going to gang up on you and things of that nature. And when you're, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old, that's that's not fun to hear because that's not that's not normal for most kids. You know, that's most kids, you know, they're their dads aren't the head coach of the university of that city. They're maybe they work for State Farm or they you know, work at a grocery store or what have you. And they're not in the, they're not in the public eye. So they're not held to that same scrutiny, but I'll tell you what it does do. It helps you deal with your own when those moments come in your life. I'll never forget. I transferred to Georgia tech uh, from Palomar college uh, and ended up winning the starting job. We were horrible, had a terrible year. All right. Um, I ended up being the ACC rookie of the year in 1994 and we were awful. And I learned more about football and life and people and relationships and how to deal with with things in that one season far more than I ever did going 21 and one the previous two years 
uh, in junior college when things were coming easy for me. So having those experiences when you're the son of a coach in a, in a public setting, and then you go through some of that on your own, and now it's on you, kind of, it, it it allows you to deal with things, I think, in a much more appropriate manner. Oh, that adversity obviously shaped you, and to be able to be prepared for that. There's no there's no question. And to be honest with you, I'm probably held to more public, with the, the passion that surrounds recruiting right now, on yes. behalf of fans, I'm probably held to more public scrutiny, or told I'm an idiot, I have no clue what I'm doing, um, you guys have no idea how this works. Your service sucks. You know, it's, it's constant it's every, it's every day in some form of social media. Now the, the reality is the people that are saying that, as we all know, would never come up and say it to your face. Number one, number two, have no idea, none, how any of the process works. They're not, they're not in your field. And you've always got to keep perspective of that. My way of always dealing with negativity on social media is I always retweet that person. So if somebody says, Luganville, you were awful at your job, click, retweet. <laughs> and then for some reason, it always seems to get that person on their heels. And that's the only thing I need to do. I don't need to respond any other way. And I'll engage with people on social media. If people want to question what we did or why we did it or how we did, I have no problem doing that in a respectful manner. And I always have. And I've always engaged with fans in that regard. It's just hard to explain an entire process in 140 characters. It's yeah, you can't do it. It's impossible to do. And so it becomes this ongoing thing of scrutiny and negativity. It's just like, eh, it's not worth it. Well, and the other side too, Tom, is that life shows you, you can't always be right. There's just certain things that you can't <laughs> predict, right? I mean, things happen out of our control. Especially when you're dealing with 17-year-old kids. Yes. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I, I talk to coaches all the time and, you talk about, you know, percentage hits on a class. You know, if you just, let's just say you bring in 25 guys and you're, you know, you're hoping and you're praying you're over 60, 65%. Well, let's just say you are at that number. That means you're going to miss on 10 of them. 10. Well, that's a, that's a lot of guys. And which 10 are they? Right. And, and so there's, there's so many unknown variables in player evaluation. And there's so many things that can restrict, especially at the collegiate level, because you've got so many rules and guidelines that can restrict your ability to gather all the necessary information. So you're weighing a lot of risk and you're always going to weigh a lot of risk. Uh, the question is, is how much are you willing to roll the dice? If you know there's red flags and you know that there's issues, but you think the guy is just a difference maker type player, are you willing to risk that? And then on the back side, if he doesn't pan out, it could cost you your job. That's right. And so... Right. You know, the one thing I always try to share with, with fans and things of that nature is you're, you're not going to be right all the time. And I tell our staff this. I say, guys, if you believe in a guy and we've done our homework and we're different than some other service, dig your heels in. I'll support you. Now, my name's going to take the heat. That's fine. But I'm not going to come back on you and say, dude, why did you? We all did this together. All right. So um, that's just the way it is. And that's why coaching staffs, the ones that are really good at it. They're not paying attention to what the internet says. They're not paying attention to what uh, writers are, are saying. They're doing their own assessments with their own set of critical factors and their own process, and they don't deviate from it. And they don't they don't fall victim to pressure. And well, why you know, fan base says why why aren't you recruiting this guy when he's been offered by the other in-state school? Well, you know what? Maybe he has been offered by the other in-state school, but maybe he's not the right player for us. So we're going to go in another direction because that guy is not the right fit. It can be very hard for people. Um, to understand that that are fans because they get caught up in stars 
and they get caught up in highlight in highlights. And and that's the other thing too, is I always chuckle. His fans want to say, How do you guys have this kid ranked here? He's got 30 offers. And my response is always very, very simple. It's twofold. Number one, are the offers committable? If you called all 30 schools right now and said, I'm committing today, would they take the commitment? That's number one. Number two, fans don't understand that amount, the amount of offers does not reflect where you are on the board. So let's just say you're a safety and you have an offer from 27 different schools. You might be the sixth ranked safety on their board, not the first. So you've got to understand that that doesn't equate the value of the of the offer doesn't equate to where you are on the board. And you can't fall victim to all those things when you're evaluating because the tape on all that stuff, that's what's going to tell you what you want to know. And then it's up to the schools to go out there and ask the right questions and gather the information. I was having a really funny conversation with a college coach during our bowl game uh, preparation. And we were talking about recruiting. It was actually during the Under Armour All-America week, and I had the Citrus Bowl and the Under Armour games in Orlando as well. So I had two bowl games within two days of each other. And I was naturally had some coaches asking about some kids that we had in the Under Armour game, how the week was going. And none of them are asking questions about ability. They're all asking questions. How is he around his teammates? How has he been treating support staff personnel? When he shakes your hand, does he look you in the eye? Is he mumbled? Does he look at the ground when he talks? A variable, a, a wide variable. thing. And having a conversation with this particular coach, and he said, you know what, I'm just, I'm done. I'm done taking risks. I can't. He goes, we just, we can't do it anymore. There's too many good players that are also good people. And he goes, the last four, that the last four guys that I decided to take a risk on are not in our program. And we were, we were talking about one player in particular. I'm not going to say who it is, but we were talking about one player who's had some issues and is a remarkably talented kid. So I said to coach, I said, well, when you're out on the road in the spring, you can watch the tape, you can watch spring ball, but what's the most important thing you've got to do? He goes, we've got to talk to everybody we can that comes in contact with that kid and ask the right questions. And I said, the right questions, huh? And he goes... <laughs> This is funny. He talks to the high school coach about a certain kid. It says, uh, Coach, you ever had a, a problem with this kid? Coach says, None. Nope. Never had a problem with him. Goes back and he talks to the eighth grade principal. Eighth grade principal says that the kid punched his teacher in eighth grade. <laughs> so the coach goes back to the high school coach and said, Coach, you told me you never had a problem with this kid. And the coach goes, You're right. I didn't. <laughs> so. So it's not just the questions you ask, it's how you phrase the question. It's no different than any interview technique you would use or I would use uh, on the field, uh, interviewing a coach post-game. But it, it's so true. And it's I had a question um, posed to me in preparation for the NFL draft. You know, would not having pro days hurt NFL teams and their assessment of players? And my argument was it might actually help them make better decisions. And here's why. Oftentimes in draft preparation, you spend months and months and months gathering intel and studying tape and breaking down tape. And you know exactly what you think the guy is. And often your first instinct is the right one. And then you find yourself caught up in two pro days that might last a couple of hours. And you let those two days completely overshadow all of the work you did in the previous two to three years. And it happens. It happens to a lot of guys. And 
you know, the, the underwear Olympics start to overtake you and you start to kind of move away from the film, which I think can be very, very dangerous and it can get you in trouble. Well, without those pro days, guess what those teams had to do? They had to do more digging, more scraping, more phone calls to the academic advisor, more phone calls to the nutritionist, to the strength coach, to the athletic trainer, to professors, to administrators. I'll tell you, I'll tell you one of the most important people to talk to is the SID. Because when they're having to ask the kid to do something from reader requests, how that kid responds is, reveals a lot about his personality. So I'm not so sure that these NFL teams won't make better decisions because they didn't get caught up in that other stuff. And they really dove into not finding out what kind of player he is, but what kind of guy is he is to me, that's a huge part of it. And remember, let's not forget. NFL teams in the first round routinely miss on about 50% of the guys. Yes. And that's with unlimited resources. Exactly. Yes. They're so, not always right. Yeah. And that's why I think it's going to be interesting to see how this draft plays out. Dude, it's unbelievable. And they'll still, and they'll still miss. And that guy is likely 21, 22 years old. And the college coach is expected to be 25, 17 year old, <laughs> year old in and be right on all of them. Exactly. It's impossible. You're not, it's you're never impossible. Do that. That's right. The, the pressure out there. What about the pressure for you in terms of, or was there pressure that you were going to play for your dad in college at some point? <laughs> well, that, that came to an end yes. the moment he walked down the sidewalk at my junior college. It's a, it, it's a great question. And that pressure was mounting and it was building. And we had had, it wasn't, it wasn't out of the question. They were in consideration. Um, here's the problem. Uh, and I, we both kind of came to the agreement that it would have been harder on him than it would have been on me because it's almost impossible for him to be right. And from my perspective, if I'm going to transfer and play for my dad, I always looked at it this way. Whatever the competition was, was the competition. But in order for him to be justified in his judgment, if I'm named the starter, I would have to be so far and ahead better than the next guy. And my performance would be so heavily scrutinized because I'm the son of the head coach. And was all of that worth it? Was he going to be happy in that environment? And was I going to be happy in that environment? And to be honest with you, let's just say he hadn't have been let go and the opportunity would have presented itself. I can probably say there was probably an 80, 90% chance I wouldn't have gone. Oh, really? Still would have been there. Just because I just don't know how comfortable it would have been for both of us. Why Georgia Tech, though? I mean, why go all the way across <laughs> the country <laughs> and to Georgia Tech? Well, a lot of mine were a lot across the country. I had West Virginia. I had Kansas State at that time when Bill Snyder was just getting it rolling. Um, I had a, a couple of West Coast, uh, University of Arizona, Washington State. But at the end of the day, and again, this goes back to coaching circles. The head coach at that time was was Bill Lewis at Georgia Tech. Bill Lewis was the head coach at Wyoming in 1978, and my dad coached one year for him. They became lifelong coaching friends. And you know, my when they started to recruit me, you know, my dad was like, "Hey, you know, this is a guy that you can trust, and that will will give you a fair shake. And and if you don't feel that way about certain spots, that um, then you're probably going to want to stay away from some of those." programs like I'll, I'll give you a prime example at the, at the time fresno state was really really good this was right at the height of when trent dilfer and all those guys were there and jim sweeney the head coach who is a, a, a classic of a, of a football coach 
but very demonstrative and very, very um, could could really get after you. So the hardest thing to do in recruiting is to tell everybody no and only one team yes. And so my dad was of the belief that you call everybody and you tell them. So I had narrowed it down to several schools, and one of them was Fresno State, and one of them was Northwestern. This was just prior to them going to the back-to-back Rose Bowls. So I called Gary Barnett, and Gary is the ultimate class act. Tom, listen, we've invested a lot in you, but we understand this is how it goes. We wish you the best of luck. Who knows? You never know when we might come in contact with each, so on and so forth. And it just so happens, not to deviate from this, but it just so happens. I had a Northwestern game in Evanston on a Saturday when they were honoring the 1995 Northwestern Rose Bowl team. And I saw Gary Barnett for the first time since I had made that phone call. So that was kind of that was kind of cool. And then I get off the phone with him. He's great. I call I call Jim Sweeney and they're in the Aloha Bowl. So he's in Hawaii and he rips me up and down <laughs> like to the point where. I have to pull the phone away from my head because he's laying into me that I'm not going to go to to Fresno State. And so um, Mike Price was great at uh, Washington State. Who I probably should have gone was University of Arizona. Dick Tomey was great. It probably would have been a better fit, and I didn't do it. But hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah. Why do you say that? So, why do you say that might have been a better um, fit? So. And I'll tell you, uh, not realizing it at the time, and again, you, you just don't know. So when I transferred to Georgia Tech, they actually had a returning starting quarterback who had started the previous 11 games. But the fact that they were recruiting me obviously told me that maybe they weren't happy with the performance or, or think it was going to get them to where they wanted to get. I was a mid-year enrollee, so I was going to be able to take part in, in spring ball and things of that nature. And um, we go through spring ball. They don't name a starter. We go through summer. Um, we enter fall camp. We battle it out. Um, and I mean really battle it out. And they name a starter a week before our opening game. And I end up beating the guy out. And it created a huge tear in our football team. Was it my fault? Was it his fault? It was a matter of circumstances. Very popular guy. His name is Donnie Davis. Great guy. And uh, he and I never had any issues. He and I were always great with each other. We were competitors. In fact, the coaching staff couldn't have made it any harder. They roomed us together oh during fall goodness. camp. <laughs> so, yes. you know, we're going, we're battling on the field. We're in meetings. We go back to the dorm. We're laying right next to each other. I mean, you couldn't make it any more difficult, especially after they named me the starter. And then it really had an impact on our football team. You know, people talk about team chemistry. I can assure you team chemistry is a big deal. The health of your locker room, if you have fractures in there, it's going to affect performance. We were a bad football team. We were nowhere near as bad as our record, but we were that bad because we didn't have great people. And it just, it divided the team. So, you know, had I known the backlash of all of that, um, then it probably wouldn't have been the best place to go. But as you stated earlier, it also helped mold the way I look at things, maybe when things aren't necessarily going your way. For sure. Then the decision to leave Georgia Tech and, and transfer, how difficult was that? You know, the interesting thing on that was I had a redshirt year. So I had two choices at that time. I could go and sit at, go to, to Power 5 to Power 5, 
sit out and still have a year of eligibility, or I could transfer down just like the rules are now and and play right away at the FCS level. I probably wouldn't have done that had uh, George O'Leary, who had been hired to replace Bill Lewis, not really started to steer the offense down a more option-based path. That I just that wasn't my skill set. They were really started. That was at the beginning of what they were able to build with um, Joe Hamilton. If you remember Joe, uh, the yes. offenses and some of the option-based stuff. And I was a passer, and so it just it was one of those situations where I had to find a, a better fit. Uh, I enjoyed school there. Uh, it's not the easiest place to go to school, no, <laughs> uh, academically. But um, uh, and I and I and I enjoyed a lot of my 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 time. Um, but the football side of it just it didn't pan out. So I ended up transferring to Eastern Kentucky at that time was able to play for one of the all time legends and all time greats in, in Roy Kidd, who I think I think Coach Kidd, regardless of division, is still in his top seven or eight winning his coaches in the history of college football. In fact, when I was playing for him, he had been there for thirty two years and he's an active coach and had his name on the stadium. I mean, how often do you find that? Not right? often. Especially so back we, then um, too. Yeah, right. And so and, and it was my great, great story about division at that time, division one, double a football or FCS football. And I understand I had come from, I would won a national championship. I'd played on national television. I'd been on college game day, played against ranked teams, all those sorts of things over the first three years of college. Now I transfer and we're, we're to the one double a level. All right. So you got no resources. I'm on my, I'm on my official visit. It's the spring of 1995 and we're driving. <laughs> I'm talking to my my host, and I said, so where do we fly out of to go to road games? And he looked at me, he's like, why? <laughs> why? We were at a bus. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Play Southeast Missouri, who's in our conference. It's in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. That's like an eight-hour bus ride one way. And they're like, yep. So you had a, a shoddy, old weight room. Pretty cool stadium for a one play school at the time. No real facilities. Um, just you're, you're back to basics. You know, yes. I liken it more to, to junior college football. And it was the single most enjoyable year of college. Not just college football. College. I, I ever had. Ever. And I look back on all of it. And I would have traded the national championship, the experience to play Division One football at, at Georgia Tech. I would have traded all of it to play five years at Eastern Kentucky. And it was one of those places. All right. My best man at my wedding was my starting center. My son's named after him to give you a sense of, of um, uh some of the lifelong relationships that I still have three, three guys off of that team were in my wedding party. Um, it just, it was a special time. And, and, and the thing that's funny about it is, and these, these were the days and I, I'm dating myself here and I'd also don't want to get in trouble by saying this. These were the days, that, like I said, remember when I said earlier, I'm glad they didn't have camera phones. Yes. Those were also the days where like the campus police and the local police, <laughs> They were in your corner, man. <laughs> yes. They 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 were there to help you. They looked out for you. you. 
Yeah, and in those small college towns, which where our most FCS or Division One AA programs are, not like that we are running around and doing you know active criminals. They're far from it. But you know your your occasional bar scuffle and your you know the things that most college athletes would be privy to um, you tended to be able to just get your way back to your dorm room. All right, this was also this was also the last academic calendar year that the NCAA allowed athlete dorms only, where the football team was all in one dorm. Yes. No regular students. I remember that. No other. Yeah. So, and I'm still to this day, I'm a firm believer that the moment they went away from that is when you started having all kinds of off-the-campus problems. Because at least when you had everybody together, one of your GAs was the RA. So you always had somebody overseeing everything. You could get to all your kids at one time. You could manage issues or trouble if there was going to be any. The moment you started letting these kids go all over campus or all over the city, and now you couldn't manage it all, is you started to see more and more off the field issues. I'm convinced of that nobody's ever going to convince me that didn't have some type of impact. And I understand with the NCAA and its involve, uh, involvement and, and why they, they moved towards that. But let me tell you something, man. Football only dorms is awesome i mean that those are the stories and all of the moments that you have as a, as a scholarship student athlete and you're it's it's just it's there's something magical about it and our guys don't have that now in, the, in this day and age and um but that was that was a, a great time and, and and going back to those bus rides bus rides might have been the single biggest team chemistry galvanizing moment of every week and so the, I, I value that. I, I, I cherish those those times. And it was uh, it was it was good. man. I, I wish I like I said, I just wish all five years were like that. But that's not life. Right. That's right. Well, that's those, those buses become just dorms with wheels on them. And that's where you can bond and just, you know, go oh. through so many things with people. And that's why I, I agree also just from the perspective of dorms. And that's why you obviously can see some of that with fraternities, how tight knit some people are on campus, you know, based on that. And I can, oh, yeah. I can easily see that when you spread that out, it is harder for the coaches to control because now it's oh. harder to manage. It's very difficult. Now, and, and listen, it's very difficult. And the money's different now than it was then. And, but you know, you're still, and like, we wouldn't have, to be honest with you, if we would have had the option. We wouldn't have wanted to. Yeah. We were having too much fun. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was, it was such a, I mean, I can still remember my, my, my senior year. All right. And I, we called it first door, first floor. Cause when you came in the dorm, I was the first door on the first floor to your right. We still remember that first door, first floor. And I, 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 I and then, I, I mean, I can remember, and these are all, these are all things that were, you know, you're not supposed to be doing if yeah, you're right. a college athlete. But, you know, in those days, you know, you had, as long as you didn't do something outside of the dorm, you, you know, you're going to drink your beers and you're going to throw your cans around and the whole nine yards. And then sooner or later, Coach Kid's going to get a phone call about it. And <laughs> after practice, you're going to run some more. And, exactly. And it was just like, it was just, yeah, this, this constant cat and mouse game of, of, uh, of one of the, and, and, oh, oh, you want you want to hear one of the greatest stories of all time? This is one of the. In fact, in fact, I have told this story on the ESPN 150 college football uh, years. I don't know if you ever saw it. I have. This yes, actually, great, yeah. one of the, it's great. Okay, so for those who haven't seen it, so Roy Kidd, 
the head coach. He's an all-time classic. Little short guy. And he get when he'd get upset, he'd have a real high-pitched voice. And we were a top 10 1AA program. I think at the time of this game, we were maybe seven or eight in the country. And we were playing a non-conference opponent, and they were awful. And it was like 14 nothing at halftime. We're winning, but we're, we're just playing terrible. And Coach Kidd comes in the locker room, and the way the locker room was divided, when you came in, the offense went on the left and the defense went on the right. He had a defensive coordinator named Jack Eisen, who had been with him for like 30 of the 32 years he'd been there. So Jack just ran the defense. Coach Kidd would go over. He, he was an old offensive guy. And he is screaming, and he's got this high-pitched voice. He used to squeak. So all of a sudden, he's had enough. And you know those big, like, 55-gallon, like, drum trash I do, cans? yes. The big, like, KitchenAid things are, like, dark gray. There's one sitting over there, and it's got, like, a big plastic bag liner. So, you know, you throw all your Gatorade cups and everything in there. Everybody's seen them. Well, what he didn't – he hauls off, and he's so mad that he kicks this trash can as hard as he can. He didn't realize – that in order for so, so that nobody would take the trash can out of there, it had been filled from the bottom up with cement. <laughs> so when he kicks it, he hauls off and thinks he's kicking this extra, extra trash, trash can. And all you hear is thump and the slight pause. And then he goes, <laughs> and he grabs his foot. And he starts jumping up and down on one foot. And he's screaming, Jack, Jack. And he's literally over there, say something, say something, I broke my foot. And he's hopping up and down. And I'm not kidding around. We are all in there on a knee like this. Just rocking hard because we are doing everything we can not to double over in a fetal position and laugh out loud and not a single person laughed in that locker wow now i don't know if that was out of fear or respect or both but uh it was uh it was one of the funniest things i've i've ever been a part of i can imagine you guys probably talk about that story forever because that's got to be legendary with the team as well (laughs) and everybody oh absolutely and there's thousands and thousands more when you coach as long as he had from the perspective then because what you mentioned that you would rather have spent your whole career at Eastern Kentucky versus even giving up a national championship. That's a big statement considering as a competitor winning a championship, that's major. I mean, that's one of the goals that you want to accomplish. I think the answer to that, and not that there's not good relationships and good people everywhere, but the simple answer is, is, people and it, it is a, that that one year was a constant reminder whether you're building a coaching staff whether you're building a, a roster whether you're putting together a front office chemistry and people and relationships and environment um so those things are so critical to overall happiness day-to-day happiness that i i i, I just to only have a year of it was was a bummer 
Yeah. That's probably the best way I can put it. Yeah. Well, at least you got a year of it. That's for, that's for certain. Yeah. Yeah. And so what about words of wisdom, Tom? I'm big on that. Any phrases, mottos, quotes, or just life advice? Obviously you've been shaped by sports and I, I know how it has allowed you to go through certain things, but any particular words of wisdom meant a lot to you over the years? You know what? Uh, two. And I heard John Madden say both of them. Tough times don't last, but tough people do. I think that's particularly important in these these times that we're living in right now. And and I learned this from a from a coach's perspective, because I think it's really true. And I try to apply it every day is you can't treat everybody the same, but you can treat everybody fairly. And no one person is the same and, and no one situation is the same, but you can treat everybody fairly. And I think that's something that good coaches out there have respect from their players because they know what the parameters are. They know what's expected and they know how their actions are going to be responded to. 100% agreed. And that's how sports can translate into life because you can apply that same type of message to life. Even as a parent, we're going to have the same situation with kids. I mean, I know you're a parent and you probably have to struggle with that, that balancing, treating everybody fair. Tom, I can't thank you enough for letting me spend some time with you. And I I think what I also figured out, though, that you being a six-foot quarterback, you were the Russell Wilson before Russell Wilson, right? Oh, yeah, man. I mean, seriously, like I'm trying to think, like, in that time, probably the next six-foot quarterback would have been, what, uh, Drew Brees in the late 90s? I was done in the mid-90s, and he was the only one. So, I mean, yeah, they're just – Won a lot of now they're everywhere. I wish we had the shotgun and the spread offense. Hell, that's we right. We used to have to beg our coaches to go into the into the shotgun, you know. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, it's crazy. It's good for six footers, though. Yes, that's right, Tom. Thank you so much. Keep that beard going and keep that PBR yeah. hat sporting. I love it. Thank you, Tom. Yeah. All right, man. You bet. We all know that winning is the ultimate goal within sports. But as Tom clearly talked about, culture isn't built just by winning. It's actually built by people. And it's these people that you can build lifelong relationships with that go far beyond the game itself. And it's also evident that those winning cultures have one common theme, that even though not everyone is treated the same, they are treated fairly. Now that finishes episode 136 and more of our conversations can be found wherever you listen to your podcast. And you can also watch some of our episodes by visiting our Rich Take on Sports YouTube channel. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. listening to rich take on sports the sports podcast with life visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed you can also follow us on twitter at rich take sports thanks for listening 